0: She inspires, educates, and informs. She talks the talk and walks the walk. She doesn't tell you what to think. She just wants you to. She's Mrs. Green. And this is Mrs. Green's World on the Mrs. Green's World Network. And now, Mrs. Green.
1: Welcome, everybody. I'm Gina Murphy-Darling, and you are indeed listening to Mrs. Green's World, an inspirational and informative place where we never tell you what to think. We just want you to. And trust me when I say we're going to give you some amazing things to think about for this show, so just stay with me. Thanks so much for joining us, and thanks to the sponsor of the show, Tucson Medical Center. Their support of Mrs. Green's world's mission and vision is just one of the many examples of how TMC celebrates and supports organizations and people who are aligned with their mission and their values. They really do go the extra mile necessary to be responsive to the needs of our community. They sponsor countless worthwhile events in our city and county. They promote wellness. They provide programs for seniors and small children and parents of small children. And TMC also provides impressive leadership about current national issues like the opioid epidemic and health care reform. They are on the scene. They know that they've been entrusted with the legacy of caring for the most vulnerable of our populations. And they continue the tradition of improving the health and well-being of the people of southern Arizona on many fronts. Thank you, TMC, for all you do. So I am very eager to introduce our guest and to talk about a very serious and sobering topic, let's be honest, that has touched or will touch all of our lives in some way at some point, and that is breast cancer or cancer in general. We all know someone, or we've had it, or someone close to us has had some type of cancer. It touches our lives. So according to breastcancer.org, about one in eight women, approximately 12%, will develop invasive breast cancer over the course of lifetime. But our guest today is going to talk with us about breast health prevention and treatment. I am very pleased, beyond pleased, to welcome Dr. Michelle Boyce-Lay, who specializes in breast health, surgical oncology oncology at Tucson Medical Center. I can say that five times really fast. Tucson Medical Center. Dr. Lay, it's wonderful to have you here, and I'm really looking forward to you sharing your knowledge with us on such an important topic. Thanks for taking the time, because I'm sure your schedule is packed.
2: <laughs> Thank you for inviting me. It's great. I'm happy great. to be here.
1: So I'd like to sh- to ask you to start with um, a little bit about your background. Let us get to know you a little bit better. And what are some of the insights as to why you chose this field?
2: So I grew up in a medical family. My father was a physician. My grandmother, who's now 95, was a nurse back in the 40s. Wow. In the 40s. And she's 95. And That's she really a surgical good. surgical nurse. So... Um, I actually tried to not become a doctor when I was younger, but it's what I was meant to do. So. <laughs> I tried not to become a doctor. I love that sentence. <laughs> but it's what I was meant to do. So I'm really glad that it found me. Um, several of my family members have had cancer and um, I'm actually a breast cancer survivor too. It's almost been two years since I was diagnosed. Um, but the, the one person in my family that really drove me to um, the field of breast was my mom's sister, Donna, and she was diagnosed at the age of 44, which is the same age I was diagnosed to. And um, she passed away at 62. And I think the thing that there were lots of things that I learned about her experience, one of which is that she turned it into a positive force in her life. She didn't get depressed or maybe that's not true, but she didn't get let it get her down and she turned it into a positive thing. She kind of changed the course of her life and what she did to help other people that had breast cancer. Um, but also, through the course of her care, she would tell me about different interactions with physicians that she had. And there was always something about it that seemed like it wasn't quite what I would want Not as quite a patient. right, yes. Right. And so I, I thought this is probably an area where I can really make an impact. And women's health is... Um, interesting because it's not studied as much as men's health.
1: Shocking. <laughs> Shocking. A little bit of sarcasm and on my part.
2: It's so true and though. And actually surgeries, you know, as a surgeon, I'm aware that, you know, surgeons get reimbursed differently from insurances for different procedures and breast surgery is actually one of the lower, one of the categories of surgery that's reimbursed at a lower rate. So as a culture, we kind of care less about it in some that ways. That is
1: really so sad to me.
2: There's no other
1: word that I can use. It is so sad that even discrimination is so pervasive that it comes to something that kills women. Right. That's
2: pretty sobering. I think that's, and so that's one of the other things that drives me is that women often take care of everybody else their whole life. Even if they don't have children, we're to take care of. You're still the, the caregiver and the caregiver and you're often you're the last person in the family that gets the care. And this is a, a time in women's life where it's probably the hardest thing they'll ever have to do. Not always, but a lot of times it is. And they have the opportunity to be the one that makes all the decisions about what happens and decide the trajectory of their life afterwards. And I think that's what I really enjoy about it is to help women get through the journey and to understand that they're is more on the other side of it that is positive and worth you know, going through all the struggles for because it's not really fun to have cancer treatment. Right, and it's pretty amazing that
1: your aunt was diagnosed at 44 and lived till 62. That speaks volumes. And of course, I think 62 is way too young right. to die, but that speaks volumes about what she did and probably had quality of life in between that span.
2: She did. She had a lot of quality of life and she did a lot of lifestyle changes, um, which we, I think at the time we didn't have as much evidence that that was something that was helpful. But we now know that some lifestyle changes have not quite as much benefit as medication, but close.
1: And can help support the, either the recovery or the treatment process right. significantly. Right.
2: Most of the lifestyle changes that we talk about with patients actually make you feel better. So that's really
1: that's so. pretty important, and I'd
2: love to go into that a little bit more. But just
1: for some clar, you know, s- clarification of terms, I read earlier that two hundred fifty-two thousand seven hundred ten new cases of invasive breast cancer are expected to be diagnosed in women in the U.S. along with sixty-three thousand four hundred ten non-invasive breast cancer. What is the difference between invasive and non-invasive?
2: So most breast cancer comes from the ducts in the breast. Those are the tubes that take the milk out to the nipple. And so they're it's a system of tubes, kind of like the roots of a tree. So the cancer starts out within the duct and that's called non-invasive. So it's all contained within the duct. And by definition, those don't spread or metastasize or cause people to die. Um, Do you have to
1: get them removed?
2: Most... Currently, we still remove okay. all non-invasive cancer. Okay. I think in the future, we will not um, because we'll have better genomic and molecular profiling. So we'll know which ones need more treatment than others. We're getting there, but we're not quite right. there right. yet. Um, and then invasive breast cancer is where it's broken out of the duct. And then it has the ability to get outside the breasts, the lymph nodes, and elsewhere in the body. The, it's important to understand the distinction because people feel like all breast cancer is the same and so i'll see patients with you know 5 millimeters, which is smaller than a p of dcis and they've already you know made themselves dying and they're
1: making their arrangements right
2: and so it's a really dcis or the non invasive form of breast cancer should be taken as a risk factor for future cancers so how can we lower your risk and that's when we talk about all the preventive preventive measures that you can take we do other things like radiation and medication sometimes for it but there are a lot of lifestyle changes that people can make to help reduce the risk of that coming back as an invasive cancer in the future. You know, I always
1: care about what's the media feeding us? And I don't mean telling us, what are they feeding us? And first of all, there probably isn't enough media attention given to this, given the numbers, and probably it has to do something with, you know, you get a lower reimbursement rate because it's only breast cancer. But I personally think, I don't get up every morning thinking I'm scared I'm going to get cancer. But every consciously living human being, that's a—it's a fear. I—you I, don't want that to, when you go to the doctor for something. The last thing in the wor- world you want to hear is the C word. How is the media doing in terms of reporting this? Is it putting more fears into people? What's your sense of the accuracy of that, or your overall—you know—what? What's your opinion on how the media is doing with awareness and? reporting?
2: I think that it's better than it used to be. So we do sometimes now hear stories that help us understand, help the general public understand some principles of breast cancer. But I think one of the reasons why people are planning their funeral when they're diagnosed with a non-invasive breast cancer is because we have a cultural paranoia about cancer. We do. And unfortunately, it's been fed by the You know, under the auspices of awareness. And so we want people to be aware of cancer, but we haven't done a good job telling people that you will survive your cancer. Because most people do survive breast cancer. Um, And it's interesting now because we're seeing people who are 20 and 30 years out, and they are having recurrences, but that doesn't mean they're going to die from it. And they live for 20 or 30 years, which didn't happen
1: Right, even 20 years
2: ago, right. it didn't happen. So, so there's so much progress on that so we front, we which is encouraging. So we don't focus enough on the survival. Right, right. And we focus on the negative or the suffering or the, um, the bravery of the women that have to fight breast cancer. Well, it is brave in a way, but you also don't really have a choice. I think one of the examples in the last five or ten years that has been helpful is... Um, Angelina Jolie talking about her experience of the BRCA mutation and the prophylactic or preventative surgeries that she had. The original piece that she wrote about, I think it was in the New York Times talking about her mastectomies was wonderful because she spoke about the newest and best techniques that we have for preventative surgery and also for cancer treatment. And those things don't get in the media very often. I was in my doctor's office recently and there was a WebMD magazine and there was an article about, should you get reconstruction or not? And it didn't even mention nipple sparing mastectomy, which is pretty much a standardly accepted method for doing preventative surgery. And tell us what that is. So when you do mastectomy, the traditional way to do it, um, well, there's a very traditional way, which we don't do anymore, but the more current traditional way is that you remove the nipple and the areola and some skin of the breast and then take out the breast along with it. And it was thought for many years that you had to remove the nipple because the cancer could linger there. But it turns out that's not really true. And so about 15 or so years ago, surgeons started doing nipple sparing mastectomy. So we save all the skin of the breast, nipple, areola, and all the rest of the skin. I had no idea. And then, we started doing it for prevention for people with BRCA mutations. And as we've gotten better at it and our understanding has improved, now we can do it for patients with cancer. And I frequently um, perform it on patients with cancer. I think several, there are several reasons why nobody knows about it. Because, for instance, in that article that I looked at that's in lots of doctor's offices, it didn't mention it. And, um, and they had interviewed a plastic surgeon for the article, so it's a shame that it didn't get mentioned. Right. And then lots, there are a lot of surgeons that do breast surgery that don't do it. Um, if you've done a fellowship, which is an extra year of training after general surgery residency, and if you've done a fellowship in the last 10 years, you've probably learned how to do nipple sparing from people that do it all the time. But if you didn't do a fellowship or you trained longer ago than that, you might not have learned the technique. And sometimes it's, it's hard to learn something new, not necessarily because it's difficult, but because it's something different. And you know,
1: just if we stopped the show right now, it would be worth it that you shared that with us because for the thousands of women who listen to this show and are engaged in this world with me and this journey, I didn't know that. And I think I know more than the average bear, but that is so affirming and so encouraging. And if women are scared our breasts are part of our identity, let's be honest. I mean, I'm not a Playboy pinup, right? But I, w- women, breasts, they're part of my, uh, I nurse my kids. They're part of what defines me as a woman. And to know that that can happen, thank you for sharing that. I mean, I'm getting pretty emotional, but that's really important information to get out there.
2: It is really important because I I think that one of the messages that I think we leave out, um, and this is part of the cultural Paranoia of cancer is that you have to get something taken care of right now. Right, right. If you got cancer. Got to do it right now. And for most cancers, that's not the case. It's not an emergency, and it's important to take your time and understand the disease process that you have. What no matter what kind of cancer it is, and understand the options. You know, we have lots of different surgical techniques now that we didn't have even ten years ago, um, but as I said before, not every surgeon does them. And that goes along with other kinds of cancers, colon cancer, pancreatic cancer. Um, And then the medical treatment for cancer has changed a lot in the last 10 years. We have more targeted therapy where we know that the cancer has one kind of problem and we target right to that. And I think that if patients just rush to the nearest person they may not take the time, you're scared, so you're not totally paying attention to what's going on. And you may not take the time to say, well, what is there another option? And sometimes it's because the person that you saw doesn't offer that option. And I, so that's one of the things I would love to educate people about the most is to take your time and understand what's going on. And obviously, you know, a lot of doctors joke that it's not really a good idea to ask Dr. Google what you should do, but there is good information. (laughs) There Um, is good information. There is some good information on the internet. The scary stuff usually comes to the top. Correct. It really is. And then you should talk with your um, physician about it and say, well, I heard about this. What about that? Um, And if they don't know anything about it or they don't do it, then maybe that's the time to ask somebody else. But that's what I wish most people would do is just calm down take a deep breath and try and understand what's going on. Um, And I I think that's probably why I I do give a lot of community uh, lectures and I frequently have people come up to me afterwards and say, well, how come I didn't get a nipple sparing mastectomy? And it's just heartbreaking to me. Right, because once it's over, it's over. There's no turning that back. It's part of that whole process of taking a deep breath, researching your options, understanding and being an advocate for yourself. Which is
1: a skill set. I mean, you go into the hospital, you go into the doctor. And when I was having my, my daughter, I didn't want a lot of things. And I kept needling my doctor. And he said to me, Gina, there's nothing I can do to you in the hospital without your permission. Nobody can. So put your big girl panties on. <laughs> he was a riot of a doctor and he said, and stop worrying about it. If you don't want them to do this to your baby, say, no, you're not allowed to do that. But that's harder. It's easier said than done.
2: It's a lot easier said than it's done. It's intimidating. Because if, if we think about the, the average person in the United States, um, you know, not everybody has gone to college and high school education doesn't have a lot of science background So true. in it. And so you're asking people to try and understand an extraordinarily complex issue in 10 minutes. And it's someone you're decision. trusting because they're the doctor. Right. And you're making a decision that will affect the rest of your life. And so I think um, the it is true that we won't do anything to people without their permission. But sometimes um, it's just hard for them to know what all the options are.
1: Yeah, and then to be able to find their voice to speak up, right. it's just—I mean, my friends and I talk about it all the time. Some of them are married to doctors, and I say, "What do people who don't have our skill set do?" I am college educated. I do have a big mouth. I am going to take a stand for myself. I wasn't always like that. I just did what the doctor said. Right. So that's what you're saying. Just you don't have to be arrogant about it, but just take a stand for yourself and ask questions.
2: Well, and that's what I'd mentioned before about women's health. I think it is difficult for women to speak up for themselves you know, especially in medicine, women who speak up for themselves are labeled yeah in a negative way yes. for physicians who do. Yes, They try to advocate for, you know, better positions or leadership positions. And that happens in academic medicine as well. And it makes it harder for you to get ahead sometimes if you speak up. It's and just so, so women sickening. Are conditioned, women <laughs> yes. are conditioned to be quieter. And so then when you're faced with something that's scary, your tendency is to not say more. And I think that's, um, that's, what, that's one reason why I like it, because you can empower women to make those choices for themselves. It's your choice. It's your decision. And I love maybe one of my famous con- con-
1: um, phrases you use. I never heard it called Dr. Google, but it's really true. I mean, I had something going on with me with just my leg swelling, and it was an anomaly. And I Google it, and I mean, I was ready to get <laughs> I mean, I'm being a little dramatic, but it's like, oh my gosh, it could be this, it could be that. And it was gone the next day. So something happened. But Dr. Google
2: had me not sleeping the whole entire night. That's right. And patients often look up pictures of reconstruction. And there's not a lot of good information about reconstruction. So they see these pictures that are that the patient looks like they've been disfigured and deformed mutilated and and all, then they say, well, I don't really want that. You, right. When in fact, that's not what the outcome is going gonna to be. What's going to happen in most cases.
1: Mm-hmm. So we're going to go to our first break and I have so much more to <laughs> ask you and so many other really good questions to help me and all of our listeners. So everybody, please stay here with me. We will be back in about 30 seconds with Dr. Michelle Boyce-Lay who is a breast oncologist, surgeon, woman extraordinaire and one of my new heroes will be right back so please stay here with me we'll talk about I want to talk about how women find how it's diagnosed I think okay. it's really great to know we'll cover some of those things and then go into a little bit more of the prevention everybody stay here with me
0: Join us for a new on-demand podcast every week at mrsgreensworld.com. Listen on your computer or mobile device using the iHeartRadio or SoundCloud mobile apps. We are a proud member of the iHeartRadio, Glimmerglass, and Speak Up Networks. Connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and Instagram. Stay in touch with information about healthy living, sustainability, contests, and events by signing up for our e-newsletter on our website. If you have questions or comments about the show, write to us at info at Mrs. We'd love to hear from you. But right now, back to Mrs. Green.
1: Welcome back everybody, I'm Gina Murphy-Darling and you are listening to Mrs. Green's World where we don't tell you what to think, we just want you to. And our guest today is providing us with such important information for us to really think about. And thank you our listeners for joining us. Today we're talking about breast health prevention and treatment and joining me in studio for this hour is Dr. Michelle Boyce-Lay, Breast Surgical Oncology at Tucson Medical Center. Dr. Lay is a board-certified general surgeon, and I think it's really noteworthy to share that she has always focused her practice, and you can tell if you listen to the first part of this interview, on developing multidisciplinary care teams to provide the highest level of personalized surgical and medical care to her patients. We're going to talk more about that. Dr. Lay works with other specialists to develop a comprehensive treatment plan based on the latest research for each patient. So, Dr. Lay, thanks so much for being here. Like I said, the first segment is like has lots of jewels in and of themselves. So how is most breast cancer diagnosed? Is it self-examination? Is it a doctor's visit? Is it the yearly mammogram? What do you know from that and what do you recommend? Like I'm thinking when I'm doing this, when was the last time I did a self-examination? I can't even remember.
2: So the most breast cancers are diagnosed by mammography, by screening mammography. Okay, that's good to know. Um, the... One thing, though, to remember that in younger patients, especially patients who are outside the guidelines for screening mammography, so under 40, the guidelines are kind of changing to push it to 45. But anyways, under 45, there's a higher chance that the that the <coughs> mass will be found by the patient themselves because, they're, number one, they're not getting screening mammography. And number two, they tend to have cancers that are faster growing, so they kind of come up quicker more quickly and become larger before they're identified um i think that the you know we know that part of the improvement in survival for breast cancer is from the institution of screening mammography about the survival has improved by about 30 percent in wow. the last 20 so 30 significant years. it's yes. really significant and about half of that is from doing screening mammography and the other half is from better treatments um I think that it's been confusing because there have been some changes in the recommendations of when you should get a mammogram. Most radiologists and surgeons still feel that forty is the good a good time to start. Um, but the the US Preventative Task Force Services has recommended that you start at age forty five. You do it annually for between forty-five and fifty-five, and then every other year until seventy-five. And then there aren't any recommendations over seventy-five, and that's really challenging because our population is aging. I know. I want to live well past that. Right. So <laughs> right. Like, yeah. I'm I know not to me, over then. is young. Yes. Especially I, it is to me. The, the life expectancy for a woman is probably at least ten or fifteen years beyond that. Maybe even twenty. I mean, I, I look at your grandmother. I mentioned that yeah, my grandmother is ninety-five. So.
1: So it's really important. So mammograms, mammograms, mammograms. Do most healthcare plans carry that? And what about for the women that are on access?
2: So access covers mammography. And um, I believe that the majority of insurances um, cover a screening mammogram. If it doesn't, the screening mammogram isn't an extraordinarily expensive test. It's probably about $100 if and you it's take An investment it. in your life. But the other thing is... Um, Tucson Medical Center has worked very hard to develop uh, grant programs whereby we get grant money from places like Komen, the Komen Foundation, the Avon Foundation, and we provide free mammograms to patients who can't afford it or don't have insurance. That's
1: wonderful to know. Another star in the TMC crown from Mrs. Green. the person
2: responsible for it, I have to give credit, is my nurse practitioner, um, Karen Narum. She's been at TMC for more than 10 years and she developed these grant programs to help underserved populations. And it's really something, it's not something that we probably talk about enough, um, but it's something that's really important for women to know because I think there's multiple obstacles to getting a mammogram, right? You're scared, so you might just put it off. You can't afford it. Um, And then you didn't know what the screening guidelines were or you don't go to the regular doctor, you know, for them to make sure that you're going. Um, and I also think the guidelines can be a little confusing because every other year, I'm not sure when I get to that point that I'll remember to do something every other year. Right. So I'm right. I'm there. That's probably <laughs> that's, why surgeons and, and radiologists aren't quite so crazy about that. But the grant program is really wonderful. And the other part to it is that it doesn't just pay for the mammogram. If someone is found to have a problem, we help them get funding or insurance or something to help them pay for their treatment. Um, So it's a really wonderful service that TMC has for our community and allows us to, it gives us opportunity to reach out to the community and educate them about breast health.
1: So I know it's okay for me to share this because my show producer and dear friend Kelly King was very open about it on Facebook and very out there. She is, she's an incredible human being and wanted other people to feel comfortable, but she had a scare recently and the rock star in her life for her care was Karen. And that is a true story. I talked to her just before we went on air and she said she was, I mean, it made all the difference in the world because all of us were scared. You just can't help it. And that the quality of care she got was so noteworthy that we thanked her for how she made the experience for Kelly be so much better.
2: I think that's really one of my major goals in treating patients with breast cancer or breast problems To try and, um, I say scrape patients off the ceiling because you just, the second someone says something, you have something wrong, you're just beside yourself. And, you know, we really try at the very first moment we come in the room to say, you're going to be fine. No matter what this is, we will fix it. And we're here to help you every step of the way. And patients, you can see them, they visibly relax. Their shoulders go down. They might smile finally. And... um, because that's what we're all scared of. We're all scared of having something that will end our life too soon. Yes, or yes. give us a lot of suffering. And so I think that's one thing that we're really good at um, in our program. And our mammographers, the whole team that does the screening mammography, they all are the same way, very comforting. And the operating room staff, we have a separate women's operating room in at TMC where a lot of gynecologic and breast surgery is done. And the staff there, they're all the same way. They reassure the patients that they're in the right place and they're getting the right thing done. And so the whole process is to help make it it's not such a negative, a less less negative experience. Right, right. In your to life. be
1: supportive of what's going on and to understand that, and it's a perfect segue to my question about another thing that I read in my research for this show is you really do have a commitment to developing multidisciplinary care teams to provide the highest level of care and personalize the medical care to your patients. What does that look like, and why is it so important to you? Given what you said, educating people just on the place from which you come would have an influence on an, to, uh, an interdisciplinary team. So what, is, what does that mean and why is it so important to you?
2: So one of the um, most significant principles that you learn when you do a breast fellowship is that you're not by yourself. Breast cancer is treated by multiple specialties. Usually the the primary three are the surgeon, the medical oncologist and the radiation oncologist. But there are other people that are really crucial to our able, ability to treat patients. The radiologist, they've got to find the cancer first and tell us how much there is there. And the pathologist, what kind is it? And what other treatments are you going to need based on the pathology? And so, and obviously, there are lots of other things as well that we like to incorporate. But those five are the main ones that are really responsible for the care. So in over the last 20 or 30 years, um, Especially, it kind of started at universities because you have conferences to try and learn more. And so you would bring the patient story, you'd look at the slides, you'd look at the mammograms, and then you talk about what you're going to do for the patient for their treatment. And then once you do the surgery, if something changes, you bring it back and you talk about it again. So that kind of um, interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary conference really started in the university setting. But what has been interesting about it is that no matter what kind of cancer you have, if you're if you're a patient whose doctors participate in a multidisciplinary program, you will live longer. Oh my goodness. I mean, that is just, it's profound. It's profound. It really is. And the reason for that probably is that you have not just one person thinking about your disease at that moment, but you have a whole room full. We have about 15 or 20 people that attend breast conference every week from different specialties. There's several surgeons there, several medical oncologists. And so you've not not—you've got the perspective from other specialties, and just other human beings. And we all have had different patients. Some, you know, There's something that I've seen 10 times, but the other surgeons seen once. And so- And vice versa. And vice versa. And so every opportunity that you have to learn something new or hear about, and it's just a different perspective. Sometimes someone will say, well, did you ever think about this? And the rest of us will say, no, we didn't. And it could be that one small thing that causes a turning point in the patient's care. So and could save their life. Could save their life. Literally.
1: Right. So, you know, kudos. I mean, there are no words to how impressed I am. And then what do you do about... I would assume that you get referrals from other primary care physicians that might not be a part of this. How do you work with them to help educate them about all of these components that are so
2: important? So that is harder because primary care right now in the United States is extraordinarily stressful and their time is compressed. And so it can be difficult to have time for them to have time to hear about new things. Um, So we do have, TMC does have some outreach programs where we have physician liaisons that meet with the physicians in the community to kind of spread our message. And we meet regularly with with those people so they understand what the message is. And then we have um, within TMC One, which is a growing organization of primary and specialty care, it's kind of a subset of TMC for outpatient care. We do have regular meetings, and then we've also started a series, an intermittent series of continuing medical education talks that you could either attend in person or you can watch as a webinar. And so we're educating ourselves as a medical group about different things, and so that's another way to get the word out. Um, But it can be difficult. We've talked, since I've been in Tucson 12 or so years now, we've talked about having Educational events for physicians, but it's difficult because a lot of times people are busy, and it's hard. So to get slammed them to come. for time. So it is a challenge. But we are we do really try to have outreach, and I've been working with some other um, organizations to try and develop a lecture series that we might give. You know, you might come for a lunchtime and talk for twenty minutes. At and a I know it may office. sound
1: ridiculous, but one of the things that you can do is share this podcast. You're, you're sharing really important information for lay people and for doctors. So that's gonna be up to TMC, but there are really there's some critical information that I know, and I know lots of people, so it'll be helpful to me. What about people who have not been diagnosed with breast cancer? Thankfully, I'm one of them. I don't have any history of it in my family. What do you recommend for us in terms of prevention? Is a mammogram sufficient or is there there a risk assessment like there is now for something called Alzheimer's, which when you're 67, if you forget one thing, you're like, oh my gosh, here it comes. (laughs) It's, It's that paranoia of the media
2: and the commercials. Right so uh, there's a couple things, so mammography isn 't necessarily a preventative because it 's just identifying something when it 's earlier right um, But there are a couple of different things. One is uh, lifestyle changes. We know that um, there are several lifestyle behaviors that are associated with an increased risk of breast cancer uh, smoking, um, which the w h o the World Health Organization has put out some. Information within the last year about which cancers are really associated with smoking. And, um, and breast cancer is one of them. Breast cancer is one of them. An- another great tidbit of information. And then um, obesity. And that's another thing that the WHO and the CDC has been talking about. Um, there are a number of cancers that we have identified now that are associated with obesity, including breast and um, colon and liver cancer. And um, so... And then the final one is alcohol. Well, not exactly the final one. There's two more. The alcohol intake is associated with increased risk of cancer. And I I saw something recently from the Centers for Disease Control saying that you should advise your patients that zero alcohol is the best. (coughs) Wow. Wow.
1: Not even a glass of red wine at night. See, the heart people would say something else, but do I have to give up my red wine? I don't have one every night, but it is a guilty pleasure on weekends at
2: times. They want us to say zero alcohol is best. The research has shown for patients who drink more than four drinks a week that they have an increased risk of breast cancer. And, you know, unfortunately our wine glasses have, uh, the poor has gotten bigger over the last 10 years. And so if you go out to a restaurant, it may not be six ounces of wine. It could be more. Now they ask you
1: six or nine. And at most places, so, so nine glasses. So at home,
2: you've got to measure how much is it, where yes, is it on the glass, yes. six ounces. So a lot of women are dismayed by that because lots of women like to have their glass of wine every night, but it does increase the risk and that's pretty clear. And then the final one is physical exercise. We know that being active reduces the risk of breast cancer initially, and it reduces the risk of recurrence. So even if you haven't been active up until your diagnosis, if you begin Physical activity afterwards, you have a lower chance that it will come back in the future so you
1: mentioned this briefly Th- those are just so I mean I, again pieces that I didn't know
2: well, and I think what's interesting about it is that it's very simple. you don't have to do something really complex. I mean there are different herbs and and things out there that people have um, associated with lower risk like avoiding soy or green tea, you know taking green tea or turmeric, all these different things but those things are can be more complex but going out for a brisk walk every day that gets your heart rate up can is something really simple to do it's free and when you do it you feel better right. i am a happier person and especially
1: the part about being outside. There's so much of our city where it's okay. And I just started riding my bike again. And if you do it, I don't dread exercise. I dread not having enough time and I let it go by the wayside. But when I get out there and walk, just I do three miles and it's just, your whole day is better. Your outlook on life is better. Your head is clearer. There's just no downside to getting outside.
2: Right. And your experience really mir- mirrors what we see in the liter- in the research literature, that exercise in- increases the amount of endorphins in your brain and dopamine, and it reduces the amount of anxiety and depression that people have. I mean, by itself, you could use it as a treatment for anxiety and depression, which are fairly common after breast cancer. So there are a lot of reasons why patients who've had breast cancer should... Just should get out there and get walk. Out and there I try to and remind people it's do free. It. All you need is a pair of shoes.
1: And put ourselves first. When you talk about women and the role of women, mm-hmm. everything else is more important than my time. And I I let it go. Today is another example. I just didn't get up. And if I don't do it in the morning, it doesn't happen. Right. Because by the end of the day, <laughs> it's not happening. Um, one of the th- is there anything more that you want to say? Because a lot of what you are about is prevention, education wellness and raising the, the level of that. Is there anything that we didn't cover that you'd like to add? Because we'd love to focus on that part of it for all of us.
2: So you mentioned risk. So one of the reasons why this, the mammography screening recommendations are changing is because we're being instructed to use risk as a indicator for when you should get a mammogram and how many you should get. The problem is though, not every primary care physician or gynecologist who sees Women on a regular basis who see women on a regular basis know how to use the risk calculators. They're very easy, they're online, um, but it takes time. It takes about five to seven minutes to put all the information in. You've got to ask the patient a lot of questions, and you have to understand how the answers that you put in there can change the results. And so, some of the sometimes it's hard to pick. You really have to know what you're doing. Right. So, the um, there are online risk assessment calculators. There's a website called Bright Pink that um, has kind of um, a patient friendly one, you don't get a number or percentage out of it, but you get a low, medium or high risk. And so that can be helpful for patients. But I think it's important to really press your doctor, am I at risk? How do I know I'm at risk? Because in the future, more of what we do will be driven by whether patients are at risk or not for breast cancer. And what patients think is a risk doesn't always make them a risk and vice versa. You could have risk factors that you weren't aware was were risk factors. And this is a little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing. It seems to me in
1: my life experience that more and more people, more and more women that I know who are diagnosed, there isn't a history. It's happening more.
2: Right. So one of the, um, we know that about 50% of people who are diagnosed don't have any known risk factors. So even if you do all the risk calculation, you might you're going to miss people.
1: And and go yeah. So it's just I mean prevention and just awareness and taking care of ourselves. Right. And I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go walk later because <laughs> it's like it's very encouraging and affirming to know that all of those things that I think about how I feel are are scientific based. The right. endorphins and all of that stuff. So anyway, we have to take another break, and when we come back, let's cover a little bit about um, cancer and men. I've read some research about how that is and I I could make some jokes about if more men got cancer we'd have more cures because but that's not very nice. So please stay here with me more with Dr. Michelle Lay from Tucson Medical Center. We'll be right back.
2: Mrs. Green's World's mission is to preserve the planet by creating a global community of people who care about the health of the earth. We educate, inform, and inspire. Mrs. Green's World is an independent, non-political, agenda-free voice. Your generous gift enables all of us to explore the issues facing the health of the planet in a comprehensive way. As a Mrs. Green's World sustainer, you can assist us in offering trusted information Providing listeners with the tools to make their own conclusions and choose their own steps to create a healthier planet. Visit mrsgreensworld.com and click on Become a Member today. Welcome
1: back, everybody. I'm Gina Murphy-Darling, and this is Mrs. Green's World. Thanks for being a part of it. If you just joined us, The topic for our show today, this hour, is breast health prevention and treatment. Joining me in studio is Dr. Michelle Boyce-Lay, Breast Surgical Oncology at Tucson Medical Center. The time is flying, but I do want to add this. As a surgeon, she partners with her patients, what a concept, (laughs) to plan the surgical therapy that will provide the best outcome for their diagnosis and help them achieve the best possible quality of life. So many wonderful things, in that statement. And a few t- personal tidbits about Dr. Boy- Dr. Lay is that she is married to Dan. She has a son, Logan, and a daughter, Lauren. And this is why I put it in here, all of whom support her dedication to her patients. And I love that I read that somewhere. And I thought, you know what? I'm putting that in because you're such an incredible human being. You enjoy traveling and camping together. And I feel it's always nice to know something a little bit personal about a guest who dedicates her life to helping others. So thanks for being with us and for sharing such incredibly important and insightful information. So what about cancer in men? And I have a lot of other questions too, but I thought that's an interesting one for me.
2: It is. So breast cancer does occur in men. About 1% of all breast cancers do occur in men. So you'd said earlier about 250,000 diagnoses a year. So 1% of those are going to be in men. And what we know about breast cancer in men, it behaves just like it like it does in women. It starts out in the duct. Um, men um, often are diagnosed at a later point because they're not having screening and they're not necessarily aware that it can happen. I didn't even know it happened. And so they may have a pain or a lump or something and they don't necessarily get it taken care of. Um, and some people actually, the cancer is quite large before they even notice it. Wow. So the treatments are very similar. Surgery, we don't usually do breast conservation in men, but sometimes we do where we remove just a part and then they have radiation afterwards. But most men have a mastectomy. Um, there is actually some information out there about getting reconstruction for men if they have a mastectomy. And it can make a difference depending on the shape of your body. It can look very right. different from right. one side to the other. So right. it's. Um, But that's
1: really good to know. I think it's very interesting. We have a lot of men who listen to the show, and I did not know it at all. I'm like, what? Men get breast cancer?
2: There's a really great uh, movie that we, um, one of my patients has started a foundation, and she um, actually helped get a screening of the movie here about a year and a half ago called Pink and Blue. And it's about families who have BRCA gene mutations that make them at risk for breast cancer. But it's done from the perspective of the men because the, the man who, I think he was either the producer or the director of the movie, his sister died from breast cancer and then they all found out they had a gene mutation. And so he found other men to profile, but also it's, it's about both men and women. Um, And several of the men that were profiled in the movie actually have websites to help educate men about their treatment options and awareness.
1: And it's just good to know. I mean, it's It's good good for me to put out there that men can get breast cancer and to be aware of it.
2: Well, I just will say one other thing about it because um, a lot of patients assume that the gene mutations cannot occur in men. So we often hear about women who have gene mutations like Angelina Jolie and Christina Applegate, but the same mutation, if Angelina Jolie had been born a boy, she had the same chance of getting the mutation from her parents. And I just was speaking to a patient yesterday about this because her sisters all have breast cancer and now she does too. And she said, well, I have a son though. And I said, nope, it's the same. It's the same. It's not the same risk if you don't have a gene mutation, but if you found that you have a gene mutation and you have a son, then they need to be educated that they should get tested and, or should you know consider being tested to see whether they have a gene mutation? And then men get different kinds of cancers with a gene mutation. They do get breast, but they get pancreatic and um, uh, prostate cancer, and early prostate cancer in their you know early forties and fifties. And so it's so important to kind of understand that whole spectrum of it. But most people assume that the gene mutation only occurs in women. Totally, totally
1: up to and including right now. I did so. Thank you so much for sharing that as well. What about, I don't like to use the word trending anymore because I associate it with what's trending on Twitter Mm -hmm. and I really don't care. But in terms of how are we trending in the United States in terms of diagnosis, is it getting better? There's so much emphasis on prevention and there's so much money spent on research. What's it look like? Is it getting better? Are more women getting diagnosed, fewer what's the situation with breast cancer diagnosis?
2: So the rate of diagnosis has been pretty much the same over the last 10 okay. or 20 years. It's always been around 250,000. The last number I saw um, was a little bit higher than that, 260. So it fluctuates a little bit, but it's essentially been the same. Um, but the rate of death from breast cancer has actually decreased. That's in certain populations. To hear. In certain populations, it hasn't changed that much. Young women still have a higher, if you're diagnosed under the age of 45, you still have a higher risk of dying from your breast cancer. Um, and um, African American women are also at more at risk from dying from breast cancer. Um, so there have we've but we've made lots of inroads. So overall, the risk of dying from breast cancer is now less than you know around ten to fifteen percent. And with African American first... women, is it because of the access to treatment? It's is not that a peak? actually. It's
1: not okay. That's so what we used to clarify think. that. So when
2: I was in medical school, we thought it was because of access to care or. Later diagnosis, but it turns out stage for stage. So if you're diagnosed at stage two and another person's diagnosed at stage two, you have a higher risk of dying, and it's because the cancers tend to be more aggressive.
1: Got it. Got it. That's another good thing to know. Mm-hmm. So I know this is somewhat of a slippery slope, and we can maybe start to go down it if you want to, but you, you hear a lot of things. You do read things on Google. People share their stories, and my information is pretty much anecdotal. But what about? you know, I'm Mrs. Green, right? So I care about toxins in the home. I care about f- fire retardant on kids' clothes and and carpet, you know, spray to to keep stains off and on and on and on. What we put on our body and what we eat. We have such a compromised food supply. Most consciously living people will agree that to that. Like, what are we eating? We're not sure. Um, what is your take or your opinion on the impact of environmental factors and what we eat on cancer in general or breast cancer specifically.
2: So it's not something that I've reviewed in the literature recently. So most of what I'll say is my own personal feeling, but I think there's so many toxins are in our environment and it has to have an impact on the... I love that you the said that. Of cancer. <laughs> and I... It's interesting because the actual number of people diagnosed doesn't seem to be increasing. And by statistics, it doesn't seem like more young women have breast cancer, but it sure feels like it to me. And maybe that's just a part of getting older, that when all of a sudden your patients are younger than you, you think there are more of them. But, you know, we had said before that 50% of women who are diagnosed don't have a risk factor. So what caused their cancer? And it could be that because we, there are genes that we don't know about yet that cause cancer. But it's probably environmental factors. It could be stress. Um, Even that is an environmental factor because of the lives we live.
1: And I know from reading a lot, when you read about what is in a plastic bottle and you break it down, I mean, I do know that. It's not anecdotal. I do lots of research on plastics and plastic bags and plastic straws and plastic storage containers. And they have known carcinogens right. in them and who thinks that it doesn't rub off and then we eat it and where right. does that go? Right.
2: Yeah, you know, when you put your Tupperware with the spaghetti in it in the microwave and the plastic bubbles up on the side.
1: Uh, what about that? Where, where do you think that's going? That gotten your So that awareness
2: so and, and... I agree with you. It scares me, but I also feel like it's a very hard environmental impact on cancer is very difficult to study, especially in the United States. People move a lot. So you may have grown up in one place, but then you lived in another place. And at which point in your life is the chemical insult the most damaging? So it can. I think that's why we haven't got as far as people like you would like us to in proving that these things are harmful. Um, but what I tell patients when they ask me is, that if you can afford to try and eat organic and non-GMO, then you should, because it's probably healthier. I mean, it just makes logical sense. Right, right. I was a vegetarian for 10 years, primarily because of the environmental risks and the environmental impact of consuming um, meat. And um, my six-year-old has asked me recently... Why, why do we eat pigs? Why do we eat chickens? Oh so gosh. we, we that's, might be heading that's a, back down that's the vegetarian yes, yes. again. And, and I've been really, really strict about not having, um, you know, trying to have organic things in the house. Um, but I don't know, you know, from a scientific standpoint that that necessarily has a foundation, but it sure makes sense that it would. I mean, why would you, why should you have all those things in your body?
1: And when you think about it for I breastfed forever. It seemed when I was doing it, it, was like half my life and loved it. No regrets, but it was something I so absolutely believed in. And whatever I ate impacted how my daughters were. Right. So why would we think that we could eat hormone injected meat, put it in our bodies and it has no impact has on us no at all? Impact. I mean, to right. me, that's not, that's not rocket science, but it's not sound science proven. Here it is. Um, there is some more research coming out about bioidentical components of plastic in breast tissue. So I'm all over those because I I do believe that people are sick and they need to get rid of a lot of the toxins in their home. Like... Air fresheners that emit chemicals 24 hours a day and they stink. <laughs> it's like I can tell when someone has them in their house, I'm like, oh my God, they have air
2: wick. Right. It's just, you should open a window.
1: You should open a window.
2: Well, and the, um, about the bioidenticals, a lot of people feel like taking bioidentical hormones is safer than the regular hormones, but it's just the exact same chemical. And so it, that's an important point that all those things, even though it came from a different source, it still has the same, of, it still functions the same way in your body.
1: Right. And for our kids, I mean, and I know I do, I go off on many tangents, but upper respiratory disease, third cause of death in Pima County. Mm -hmm. Who knew? Um, I I got informed by a client who started talking to me about what they do to make sure that our home environment, we're breathing clean air. And we bring so much in from the outside. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a lot of things going on. I think it's interesting. And I don't know if you want to elaborate a little bit more on in your, I'm trying to tie it all together in your wellness and your prevention and your awareness um, component, how big of a factor do you think stress is? Because I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, our society is addicted to our phones, attached to them. If not, I'm working on non-addiction to my phone. There's so. It seems like there's so many more things going on in our world that cause stress, like the evening news. I knew how to eliminate that stress.
2: I don't listen to it anymore. Right, I stopped listening to the news too. And last week, for some reason, I, I turned it on on the radio. And by the time I got home, my was shoulders up around yes. my ears and I was yes. grouchy all night. So I, I do... There probably is some research about this because it's been something that we've talked about for a long time. I just haven't read it recently. But I I think one of the things that's the biggest impact for me is I frequently see patients diagnosed with breast cancer who've recently had an extraordinarily stressful time in their life. They're caring for an ill parent that passed away um, or a spouse passes away or a divorce or some other, you know, sometimes it's all three, you know, I've had several patients in in my career that have multiple of those stressors, and then they get a breast cancer. And so is it that it caused it? Maybe, maybe not. Could it be that it reduced your immune system's ability to squash it? Right. Because your immune system's busy fighting off the stress, or it's diminished by the stress. So I think that probably does have an effect. And we have extraordinarily stressful lives. And they really. It's a struggle that in our own family we have. You know, I was telling my son the other day, "You look at your iPad too much." He's like, "Well, what about you and your phone?" Yes, right back He's at like, you, you look mom. At it all the
1: time. Yeah.
2: Yes. And I said, "Well, you're right. I do."
1: And we're doing phone you know, park your phone at um, at our team meetings and at, at family dinners. It's like, no, park your phone. We have phone stack because it's so important and, and let's play more games and not have them be on our phone. One important question that I wanted to ask that I, in scanning my notes, really glad I came back to it. Um, if a patient has been diagnosed with breast cancer, do you recommend that they, absolutely see a specialist like you, and I'm not asking this to be a commercial, but I would think, instead of having a primary care physician be responsible for you know the master of my fate, is it important that people who are listening seek out that care? Because you know a lot more than a lot of primary care physicians. Let's be honest.
2: Right, so the primary care physician's responsibility is to get the diagnosis made and then send the patient to the next step, which would be a surgeon or a medical oncologist or a radiation oncologist. And usually it's the surgeon that's the first step. And I think the choice of surgeon is really really important based on the things we've talked about. I do too. And I did a general surgery residency. I know what we were taught in general surgery. I just did my recertification, so I took the board exam again, and it is not, it is not all the information that you learn in a fellowship. And there are good surgeons who didn't do a fellowship that do breast surgery. Um, but you have to really seek those out because your primary care physician may not know the difference. And I, I had an interesting conversation in the doctor's lounge the other day. I sat down with some of the gynecologists and there was another woman sitting there who is a neonatologist, so she takes care of the you know, early babies right, in the, in right. the NICU. And there was a medical student saying, oh, I'm really interested in breasts and I'm gonna do this and that. And I said, well, make sure you do a breast fellowship. And the neonatologist said to me, well, are there people that do breast surgery that don't do breast fellowships? And I said, yes. Wow. I'm the only, you know, outside of the university, there's one at the university and there's myself in Southern Arizona and that's it. And then the state of Arizona, when I started my practice, there was only me and one or two other people. And so she said, well, why would somebody go to somebody who didn't do a fellowship in breast? And I said, I don't know. I ask myself that every day. Because they don't know. Because they don't know and because they're scared. And so they're like, I'll just do whatever's the fastest. Um, And we frequently have patients, if there's, you know, a week or two delay because my schedule is full, they'll call back and say, well, I went to somebody else because I want to be seen faster. But that isn't necessarily what's important when you have cancer. It's really, really, really important to take your time. And, you know, now I can speak from a personal standpoint. I I did all this. I had an abnormal imaging. I had to get a biopsy. I had to get the results on a Friday afternoon, like just like every other patient. And... You feel like time is a pressure and it's urgent, and it it just really isn't as urgent as you feel it is, and so it's so important. In fact, I I saw a post last week from a surgeon in San Francisco that was just diagnosed with breast cancer, and she's a breast cancer surgeon. And um, I don't, I've never met her, but her picture looks like she's fairly young, and she trained. I know she trained after I did. And her, she'd said six weeks into my process now and I haven't had surgery yet. And that made me so happy because she didn't rush.
1: Right, right, right. But what you said is just to me, like that. it's like almost the biggest takeaway from this show of get to know what you need to know. I would never in a million years, say, oh, I want to go to a doctor who had a, who went through a breast fellowship. I never even heard no, of it right. till this show. So it's so important to get that information out. And even if you don't know that, Google is good for researching. Who should right. I see? Share other people's stories and care enough about your body. Most people look at 20 houses before they buy one. Correct. So put all the why effort in... Why would you in, go to one doctor? Yes, why would you go to... Or do enough research to know that the doctor you're going to is the right doctor and how were how were other people treated? I mean, there's a way to find out if you care about it.
2: There are some good resources. Um, the American College of Surgeons has a find a doctor button or find a surgeon button. It doesn't necessarily divide whether people did a fellowship or not, but you can look for... Um, You know, most of us put on there what we like to do, what kind of surgery we like to do, what we specialize in. And then you can look up people and it will say whether you did a fellowship or not. And the American Society of Breast Surgeons also has a list of people that are a member of their society. You don't have to be fellowship trained to be a member of the society. But if you bother to get a membership, you probably do a lot of breast in your practice. And um, I had a patient recently that came to see me, but she was going to be in Oklahoma for six months. And so we found her, that's how we found her a breast surgeon in Oklahoma to go to. Um, was by using those resources. So, so there's a
1: way to find there out. There is a way. Mm-hmm. So in wrapping up, I will say this, and I am, I will be very happy to be quoted on that. I think this is one of the most important shows I've done in 10 years. And it, it can save people's lives. That's how I felt. You gave incredible information. I know you're busy. I appreciate you taking the time. So thank you from me. And thank you on behalf of all the people that I'll hear from and benefit from this show. I really appreciate it.
2: I really appreciate you giving me that opportunity because it's something that's very important to me that people understand what their options are because it's just really it's hard it's hard we had enough time to talk about it right
1: yes okay everybody thanks for being a part of mrs green's world make it a great green healthy week everybody